America's asking you to call. Drive your Chevrolet through the USA. America's the greatest land of all. To understand how this ad from the 1950s felt to consumers, you first have to understand the US in the decade before. The US entered World War II in late 1941, and the war effort required a massive manufacturing push. Instead of hoping businesses would come on board, the government compelled their participation. In early 1942, US President Franklin D. Roosevelt halted all civilian auto production. Automobile plants that used to manufacture auto bodies and steering wheels were converted to factories that aided the war effort. That meant that General Motors manufactured military trucks, planes and ammunition. Chevrolet plants built aircraft engines, shells and army ambulances. The war ended September 2nd, 1945. Chevrolet resumed automobile production on September 3rd. After years of cutting back, all of a sudden, everybody needed everything. Consumer goods like cars and washing machines were selling faster than companies could make them. Isn't that a sight to take your breath away? Commercial television was also experiencing a boom. Wouldn't that new beauty steal any show? The new 1953 Chevrolet. Chevrolet was early to understand the appeal of the new medium for advertisers. TV offered people a chance to see the new models of Chevy in their own home. And that beautiful, beautiful grill. There was an optimism in this new technology and so much innovation and excitement. Television changed advertising completely. I'm Damian Bradfield and this is Influence, a show about advertising, the good, the bad and the ugly. Our guest today is Kerry Schimmel. She's the Chief Strategy Officer at the advertising agency Campbell Ewald and they have worked with Chevrolet for literally decades. Thank you very much for joining us, Carrie. Thank you for having me. I was on your website, or the Campbell Ewald's website, and what I did love is that you embraced the idea of being old. And Absolutely. it isn't old as in stuff here or anything else, it's old as in knowledge, as in you've been around a long time and you clearly know what you're doing because you've been doing it a long time. So the agency has been around for over 100 years. It was established in 1911. It's the same year that Chevrolet was founded. So what kind of advertising was Chevrolet doing right back then in the beginning? Well, in the beginning, it was literally some of the print. Actually, in the 1930s, we started to do radio-based ads. So I'm going to divulge my age. You don't have to if you don't <laughs> want to, but 42 years old. Mm -hmm. We did have a black and white television in our house. We had a, a really small you know, white-backed, massively elongated television that sat sort of in the kitchen. And I think we had a color TV at the same time, but we used to watch a fair bit of stuff on black and white TV. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Did you have a black and white TV? I did. I actually remember, oddly enough, in the late 80s, we had this fuzzy little black and white TV that could pick up stations with this giant long antenna. Right. So at our office in Detroit, we actually have this library space that has rows and rows and rows and rows of books. And what's interesting is we've kept every single ad that we've ever made, and they're all in this library. So I went to the archives, and I had some of the team pull some photos, and I found out that Campbell Ewald bought their first black and white television in 1948. 
And it was this big oh. deal. They they brought it into the office. I think the screen was like six by six inches. I mean, this thing was right. super tiny. But it was fascinating because that was a time in which, of course, no one really in America had a television. I think the the penetration of TV and households at that time was well below 10%. And it was an opportunity for people to not only experience what it was, but then also to say, well, how could we experiment on this kind of platform? Does that history, your agency at the forefront of television advertising, give you a unique perspective in your work today? Really, when it comes down to it, all these lessons that we've learned over the years are helping us now and today and understand complex businesses and how to evolve. So I see some of the same things that happened when television first started is still being repeated today, but just in a little different way. So go on, like what? So like, for example, you look at Dinosaur Show. Hi there, what a wonderful time for you to drop by. And it was a song in it, and it brought it to life. But to be honest, it was like reality television. It was the first reality television that kind of came to mind. And then things went very scripted for a while. And here we are in the 90s and the 2000s and reality television hits again in a whole new way. And the way in which brands can now integrate into shows are very similar to these brand integrations or content integrations. All right, designers, your 30 minutes of sketching begins right now. You can sketch your design ideas with the new friction erasable pens by Pilot. So to me, that's fascinating. There's like this cycle of kind of returning the old is new and that sort of thing. I think the other aspect too is just the way that music has been a part of television from the very beginning. So you look at the stars and the way that music kind of went from radio to television, how these artists are pivotal and foundational to the brands and and they've literally built this iconic structure and what basically has formed American culture and then you see the same thing happen decade after decade. So you've got Dinah Shore, and then you've got in the 1970s with Coke and the idea of I'd like to buy the world a Coke. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. song not only was something that created this whole incredible ad, but then it went forward to also become this incredible pop song. And then you have in the in the 70s and 80s when Pepsi said, you know what, we are going to own the youth generation. You're a whole new generation. Literally, I think the stat is 97% of Americans that year in some way, shape, or form saw the Michael Jackson ad nine times. It's an interesting place when you see now how pop music and pop stars are just such a part of the landscape. In researching for this, I was trying to think and, and find, you know, the first 
UK examples of TV advertising because mm-hmm. I'm not afraid to admit it. I'd never heard of uh, Dinah Shore <laughs> and I've never driven in a Chevrolet. We've got to get you in a Chevy. Sorry, did you just offer me a Chevrolet? I'll take it. That's very kind. <laughs> um, you know, through in the UK, we had BBC television first, so there was no advertising on the BBC. Oh. And then basically only when Channel 3 came out, which is ITV in 1955, mm-hmm. did the first TV ad air in the UK, which was for Gibbs SR toothpaste. It's tingling fresh. It's fresh as ice. It's Gibbs SR toothpaste. The tingling fresh toothpaste that does your gums good too. Um, whereas in the US, the first TV ad was around 1941. Mm-hmm. The US has always been at the forefront of sponsorship and sort of branded content or product placement, what, you know, whatever you want to call it. It was definitely in the 40s and 50s, it was definitely an era or a movement that was stimulated and pushed from America. Um, and looking back through the you know, top 10 hits and the Billboard Top 100 in the UK and the US, it's mostly Americans. So it's mostly, you know, Elvis Presley, Perry Como, Doris Day, um, the very few English artists. And I'm only referring to England because I'm English. <laughs> Talk us through some of the the first ads and assume that some of the listeners have never heard of or listened to See the USA and your Chevrolet or, you know, had any contact whatsoever with Dinah Shore. It was a combination of both commercials, so what we would expect, a 30-second or a minute. But then a lot of the content was actually integrated within the shows themselves. So what you would find is in the early days, a lot of these variety shows that were kind of hearkening back to the radio era. So many Americans coming out of uh, World War II and understanding just that, you know, people would gather around that radio are now having the same experience around the television. And what's great is they're bringing stories to life in this variety show format where you've got musicians and you've got these little sketches, if you will, and Oftentimes, the brands themselves would then become essentially the star or a performer in one of these sketches. So the Dinah Shore show was, uh, she was a well-known singer and, and actress. Honestly, we're all just bursting with excitement about this brilliant new performer. Come on now. I want you to meet a great new star. And she talks as if this is a true character, and then she reveals... The new 1953 Chevrolet. Isn't that a sight to take your breath away? And then she goes on to sing an entire song that's about 90 seconds long. I think what was powerful about a lot of those types of ads is that it created almost a humanity to the product itself because they became part of the show and part of the experience. But then they also help to create a sense of optimism for how you use that. So, for example, with the see the USA and your Chevrolet, what was interesting about that is the highway system was just established in the United States in the 1950s. And so it was right. the first time coming out of the war where people had disposable income. They uh, were repainting for themselves what the picture of the American dream was. So it was a home that often had things like an RCA television in it a washing machine, things that were so new to the American marketplace. And so these products became part of that American dream. And things like a Chevrolet was part of that too, and and exploring the world. And for many of them, for the first time, actually taking a vacation as a family. And it encouraged people to see the United States where 
before the war, the likelihood of them traveling from one state to the next was very rare unless they were moving cross-country. So it just opened up a whole new way for people to honestly paint the picture of what success looks like in America. I always um, remember my granddad saying to me that we took it for granted that we went on holiday. And it wasn't as kids that we went on holiday all the time, but we did go on holiday mm-hmm. and we had holidays. But you know, my granddad, you know, would always recount the fact that they, they didn't have holidays. In fact, they didn't really have weekends when they, were, when they were first working, you know, and he probably started working when he was 14, I think. Even the idea of a weekend was a relatively new concept. So in, you know, post-war USA, post-war Britain, the idea of having disposable income and being able to potentially tap into something like part ownership of a Chevy or buying a car or going on holiday was an incredibly luxurious, you know, almost far-fetched concept for a lot of people. You know, it's an interesting thing that television also created, like this sense of kind of community. And and essentially, you know, if you couldn't go someplace, so say they're trying to inspire you to go on a trip, but if you couldn't do that, I think one of the other things that I love in this time period is how brands, they essentially provided like content sponsorship and giving you access to places you've never seen before. So one of my favorite stories now is to look at people who remember appointment viewing television, right? And that's the big thing that we say today when we talk about shows that have the ratings. But back in the day, you had someone like Mutual of Omaha who had a show, Wild Kingdom, and it came on every Sunday night. Welcome to Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Wildlife and conservation stories occur all over the world. Ranger Jim Jordan and I set out to rescue two cougar kittens who were in no mood to be rescued. It was um, an opportunity for people to experience new worlds and cultures and animals they'd never seen before. And as a family, they would gather around and it would truly be this moment that they kind of created this connection. And if you talk to anyone really in the U.S. over the age of 45, and they remember that as a pivotal family moment, something that shaped their youth. And it's fascinating to me to see the brand power that that still has today, even though they watched it 40 years ago. I had to go back and watch um, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. So for those listeners not in the U.S., Mutual of Omaha is a, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a life insurance company that sponsored a TV show, which um, the best episode I found was one that was called Strangest of All, where they brought out a two-toed sloth and explained how bizarre and strange this animal was. Marlon, I think we have one of the strangest animals in the world right here. This is the two-toed sloth, and he spends his entire life hanging upside down. His hair has even adapted so that it parts on his stomach and hangs down over his sides. I'd better get him out of here. So it was part of Walt Disney's night on Sunday night where it was all these different shows that was really focused around family. And so Wild Kingdom was something where Mutual of Omaha, still to this day, I'll tell you, you run into anyone and they they see the connection still. And what was fascinating was to see how that appointment viewing then translated from Sunday night to Monday morning when... At the time, uh, Mutual was probably set up in a place where they have salespeople, right? And so what would happen is they would hit the 
the neighborhoods on Monday morning and knock on doors and your insurance guy would come by and say like, hey, did you see the latest episode last night? What'd you think of the two-toed sloth? And it would create this sales moment and opportunity to where everyone saw this and it entered into kind of that new space. Right. Again, which, the you know, America was so far ahead of its time compared to, compared to the rest of us because I feel like we only moved into branded or, you know, sponsored programming very late in Europe. And again, in looking up, trying to find examples of the first sort of corporate sponsorship that happened, the examples that I kept finding were related to football or soccer. So in, um, in 1973, the German Football League had its first sort of corporate sponsorship with a team called Eintracht, Braunschweigs, and Jägermeister, which is, you know, that mm-hmm. um, drink much associated with Jäger bombs, was the the first sponsor of the shirts. But this is only in 1973. Oh, wow. And in the UK, it was in 1976 with Kettering Town Football Club that managed to get a probably a massive billion-dollar deal from Kettering Tires to sponsor the, the local football club shirts. The US was 20, 30, 40 years ahead of um, one of the other major advertising markets you know, in, in the world. Something that you mentioned earlier on that I just wanted to go back to was Chevy's or Chevrolet's relationship um, and sponsorship of Bonanza. Oh, yeah. Which, again, to those people that are, you know, too young for this or not lucky enough to have been able to watch it, Bonanza is a cowboy show set in um, Nevada in like the 1860s, 1870s. A Western, all, you know, featuring men riding horses. It seems a very peculiar show to be sponsored by an automobile company. Right. Um, you know, I think right? that was one of the things. So when I started doing the research as well, I'm like, it's a little strange because they would make commercials where here are these guys who are always riding on horses are now walking around automobiles in the actual commercials. Welcome to Virginia City. Though I guess we should call it uh, Chevrolet City. Because this is where we'll begin to show you the exceptionally exciting lineup of new 1965 cars from Chevrolet. So let's get started with Pernell Roberts and Corvette. So it was definitely kind of an odd match together, but I think part of the reason that they actually went into that programming was Bonanza was one of the first shows that was entirely in color. And so it provided them the opportunity to have those spots run after be in color and and kind of experiment with that platform. And it was almost a way to say that we're innovative. And there was a whole lineup of basically artists and celebrities that had partnerships with Chevy. And so what you would find is something like Bonanza. It was definitely one of the top shows of its time. And so Chevy knew, I think, intuitively, just because they were there from the beginning, how to partner with the right type of content to say what's going to do really well and and what also is going to appeal to the broadest kind of American market. Was it Chevy that, um, you know, was a real pioneer in this? Or the other companies that you were representing or your agency represented that were also pushing the boundaries? I think from a television standpoint... Chevy was definitely one of the lead pioneers in that space. One of the things that I think a lot of advertisers have done over the years, Coca-Cola, Chevy, even Eastern Airlines, is to try and tell the stories and to almost normalize, I think, 
some stereotypes that were trying to be broken. So for example, in the 60s, Chevy did a, a commercial that portrayed a woman for the first time in not a traditional housewife role. And so here she is driving the automobile. She's a very independent woman. It was done and shot in such a way that actually utilized cinematography and more of the art house style of fashion and high fashion. And then I think also you look at Eastern Airlines. We did a lot of the same where we tried to make sure that we were depicting all of the people who should be free to travel the country. And I think, you know, some of that responsibility is really powerful to see how brands have stepped in and said, you know, it is our role to show America what it should look like. What other examples do you know of where we've seen television commercials actually being responsible for the progression of film or television in general? Yeah, I think, you know, there are some really interesting examples of special effects that were tried first in television um, and in commercials before they entered some of the mainstream movies and the way that people approach those. Come along for a magic ride in a magic car. I'm thinking of an ad in particular in which two people are driving down the road and it's supposed to be talking about an automobile that has lighter than air and they essentially remove the automobile. And so it's two people and they look like they're going down the highway at a breakneck speed and it's providing this perspective and, and kind of a special effect that how they do that. I think Brands and commercials were some of the first forerunners to really the MTV movement, right? So a number of these commercials were literally music videos uh, before music videos became a thing. And so I think that's also part of pushing things forward in that context. So you have everything from Coca-Cola to Pepsi, especially, and how they really helped to create kind of the landscape for where music videos would go into the future. And I think also just how artists would would market themselves in general. So Dino was definitely a an influencer. How have we gone full circle? Because it really feels like for a, for a period very early on in television, we were using these personalities to just literally sell products. And in this instance, it's pretty brave. I mean, it's a very masculine car, yet it's being sold by, you know, very attractive women. You know, fast forward uh, quite a few years and we went through an era where it was all about just, you know, allowing the product for, to speak for itself. Mm -hmm. 2019 or 2018, 2015, the influencer arrives and we're in this phase where it's absolutely imperative for brands to to get that endorsement, but to get it done in, an, in a way that feels genuine and authentic and that actually people buy into is incredibly complicated. Yet Chevy seemed to do it in a very authentic manner. To be honest, it was kind of an extension and evolution from the radio era. So you had things like Tylenol Hour. and what, What's that? What's Tylenol Hour? So Tylenol Hour was on a radio show. And probably one of the best examples of it still alive today is in the Grand Old Opry. So it's still a live radio show that happens every week. And you kind of get that same experience of reading the ads and the ads sponsoring the content that's coming out. But that was always a part of really the 1930s and the 1940s on radio in America. And so when television happened, I think the key was how to find that authentic connection to what would represent the product. So when I look at someone like Dinah Shore, she was the quintessential kind of American girl next door, 
And it was a it was a match that made a lot of sense in that context. What I would also say is there's a reason I think that they went to something like Bonanza, which was also very male-focused. So Chevy was able at the time to say, how do we also think about what products actually partner with which influencers? Fast forward into the 80s, and you have Like a Rock. Like a rock. The trucks you can depend on, the trucks that last. Chevy trucks. And here's this guy from Detroit who's hit, you know, did an amazing job in, in the 80s. And then to be tied so closely now with trucks. I mean, you can't hear that song like a rock without thinking of a Chevy truck. That's the secret. It's the secret today, just like it was years ago, is how do you find someone that so aligns with not only the product, but the brand that it just feels natural? What lessons can we take from the past and apply them to the present? And, you know, is there something happening around a change in streaming or the change in the way that we consume film or television? It's interesting to see how cyclical some of these things are in nature. So this idea of uh, destination or appointment viewing, I think it kind of goes back to that community, that idea that television can create a sense of shared experience. I mean, you look at just the sheer amount of conversation surrounding the last season of Game of Thrones. And whether you right. hated it or not, which apparently most people did, it was the conversation. I think that goes back to the days of Sunday nights gathering around the television and watching Wild Kingdom. Right. And I think... Part of that sense of shared community is honestly what people are craving again today. And so I think we're only going to continue to see that evolve and develop. Do you, um, when you're watching television, do you have a second screen at the same time? Always, if not three. <laughs> so Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel like if I cannot have access to Wikipedia while I'm watching something, it's it's less of an experience. So the amount of times I will... Google who's this person or try to understand where this story come from. Do you think if uh, Dinah was with us today, still doing the show, do you think she'd be uh, live tweeting at the same time? Absolutely. I think, you know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> that woman knew I how to sell that, something. I tell you, she's... That's true. She was, she was pretty savvy in her day when it came to that. So if Dinah did come back, I very much hope that she wouldn't live tweet. I'd like to think that she would just keep it solid. I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you, Damien. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. And that's our episode today. Special thanks to Kerry for opening the television archives with us. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby. Our supervising producer is John Asante. And our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Influence is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. It really helps spread the word. And you can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Neon Hum Media. Don't change the channel. This episode of Influence is brought to you by Hipsterface, concierge moustache grooming service in your own home. 
we're joined by Matt, probably the hippest hipster in the whole of Hipsville, who's been using Hipsterface for nearly three months. Matt, you look amazing, obviously because of Hipsterface. Thank you so much, Damien. I appreciate the compliments, but I got a confession to make. I wasn't the hipstiest of hipsters three months ago. True. The fact is, I couldn't grow a handlebar mustache if my if my life depended on it. But due to hipster face, I you have, did try. I have my personal mustache concierge service coming straight to my door. Right. That is inserting um, follicles right where it matters the most, and that's right above the lip area. And there's a bit of a myth that you can use your nasal hair to contribute to your mustache. It doesn't work. Uh, I, I believe me, I've tried, and it's it's a nasty comb over. It's a comb under. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not pretty. It's a major issue. No, so hipster face took all that, all that kind of embarrassment away, and I can go to an arcade fire show now with complete confidence, front row and center. Amazing. For how much money? What does it cost? What's the what's the coupon? What's the discount we're offering to our hipster listeners? So the concierge mustache service is sixty dollars a month. If you need the follicle service as I did, that is fifty thousand dollars for seven surgeries over the course of three months. And there's probably a payment plan for that. No, there isn't actually. It's a flappy. Oh, bargain. And what's the coupon code, discount code, implant code? That is IPA17456. Amazing. And memorable. None at all. Hipster face. Not a hair out of shape. <laughs>